my life has been drastically changed by the passage in John 15 because I feel like it's actually altered my understanding of intimacy. I'm going to say there's many people that have asked me if like laboring in ministry and building a house of prayer has taken me out of the place of the posture of Mary of Bethany. And what I've actually said is, is that place of partnership, it is intimacy before God. That is intimacy. And that's exactly what he was talking about in John 15. In John 15, when he said, whatever you ask, I firmly believe that because abiding preceded it, whatever we ask, we are literally just asking what is on the heart of God because we've become so one with him that our ask is just echoing his heart's desire. Our asking is just giving voice to the passions of his heart because we've become so one with him that what we are asking is the passion of his heart, that we're just echoing back to him. And that's really what I feel like is that with what we're laboring to see in J-Hot Boston, that that place of partnership and intercession, that, that is intimacy because we've become impassioned with the vision and the passion of his heart. And you know, as at 15, 16 years old, I had given my life really to studying revival history. And I have to say it was at that age my heart began to burn for New England. In a sense, not because I was mystified by the years of old, because I felt like I, I got a glimpse into the dream of God's heart, God's intended purpose. And it was at 15 and 16, I began to be so jealous to say, God, I desire that the fullness of your passion all that you dreamt in your heart when you, when you envisioned New England, when you sent those, those men and women, I want to see that come to pass. I want to see the dreams of God's heart. So it was at that age that revival history was really birthed within my spirit. And the extraordinary thing is that um, it was years later, I went out to Pasadena, California. I had been praying over in an abandoned college campus it had been empty for five years. I, maybe, I don't know how long it had been empty at the time. But the long and the short is, I felt like the Lord spoke to me that on that college campus, that he was going to raise up the Moravian lampstand. I began, this was eight, nine years ago, to dream of a prayer and missions movement. But what you have to understand is my only context of that was actually from hearing Lou mention it once. I heard him say the word Moravian lampstand. And then in Jim Gall's book, I highly recommend it, The Lost Art of intercession. He mentions the Moravians. But this is what I'm sharing with you is that when I went out to Pasadena, California, I had never been there before. I stepped my foot onto um, where Mott Auditorium had no idea who John R. Mott was. Had never heard of him, had no context. Didn't really even understand anything of what had happened in California. But when I stepped onto that campus and when I saw his face over the auditorium, I broke in such a way of a manifestation of the Holy Spirit weeping and in travail. And actually, just this last month, as our family was moving, I came across a picture that Therese took of Lou and I standing in front of Mott Auditorium, John R. Mott behind us, me just a ball of mess weeping. And I remember that day, Lou said, this is a window into your destiny and your future. And the extraordinary thing is, is that I come back literally two weeks later from that trip in California. I'm sitting and I'm studying a history book. And it's a history book of the college campus that I've been prayer walking all this time, believing for prayer and missions. And actually, my good friend, Peggy Foley, <laughs> we were sitting in Heavenly Donuts. And she had, <laughs> she's sitting on one side of the table 
I'm sitting on the other side of the table. She's got her history book open. And as I'm sitting there, I see on her page, I see the word upside down, John R. Mott, which I had just left Pasadena for the first time seeing the guy's name on a building, still had no idea who he was, had no understanding. I say to her, I'm like, give me that book. I'm like, John R. Mott. She looks at me, she goes, John R. Not because of the Toronto outpouring. <laughs> and I said, no, John, not John R. Not. John Armand. I said, that's the man from Pasadena, California. And so I began to tell her what happened to me with Lou in, in Pasadena. And the long and the short is, as I'm reading, the very college campus that we had been prayer walking and laboring over, believing for a prayer and missions movement, it said that John Armand came there to release the student volunteer missions movement because he recognized that that was the well for foreign missions. And when he stood, and there's a monument there today, but when he stood, he actually stood commissioning them, saying that, the, that the, our forefathers had dreams, that they launched out. He was speaking of Adonai and Judson and Anne Hazeltine. He said there was dreams in their heart. God birthed a vision within their spirit. He said, but they did not see it realized. He said, so the call upon our is to pick up the mantle, to pick up the dreams that they were living for and to see them fulfilled in our generation. That is what John Armott commissioned them in 1910. That was the commission to them in Bradford at the very place that we had been laboring. And all I can say is that when you look back over time at the way the Holy Spirit orchestrates and confirms and affirms through the prophetic and the way that he aligns circumstances that man never could, I can say that what we're going after in Boston has been so affirmed by the Holy Spirit through supernatural prophetic activity. What? No, no, no. But I'm introducing Brian, actually. <laughs> but this is the deal, is that in the midst of all of this, when you have a vision from God in your spirit, I can't tell you, when we launched J-Hot Boston, it's funny to me that I said this to the Lord. When we launched J-Hot Boston, I remember sitting in our basement prayer room. There was no heat. It was freezing. We had no idea how we were going to pay the rent. I couldn't feed our team. We lived off of oatmeal for like six months. It was sad. But I remember saying to the Lord, Eve, this is funny. Even if you never speak to me another prophetic promise, you have made it so clear your intention and your purpose for New England, I could never back away. Can you believe I said that? <laughs> Years later, I'm like, what was I thinking? <laughs> he has spoken since then and, and confirmed it profoundly. But that was my vow before the Lord. It, he had so confirmed it prophetically through so many years and so many circumstances that there could be no questioning or there could be no denying what the Holy Spirit was orchestrating. Um, right down to actually, where there was a, our present house is a complete miracle. If you knew the, the, the turn of events, it's a historical property. It's where George Washington had his troops camped during the re revolution. Nuts. But there was a delay with our property. So I went to stay with Brian and Grace for a couple of weeks in Kansas City. And honestly speaking, Brian was trying to convince me I should move to Kansas City. <laughs> but being there, this is what I'm saying. I sat in Brian's living room one day. No one was home. I sat there for probably six hours. And I said, Lord, I know that I know that I know you've called me to Boston. I know the vision that you've placed within my spirit is your vision. But I'm asking you, as a gift, would you confirm it once again to me today? Because I was coming back here, you know, to kind of keep slugging it out. That day in Brian's living room, um, I actually got an e email from Edson Porto. 
He said, you have to watch this. That very day, while I was asking the Lord to confirm it to me once again as I was sent back from Kansas City, Wendy Alec was on her God TV program, just doing her deal, whatever she's doing. All of a sudden, spirit of prophecy falls on Wendy Alec. And I mean, this is like literally when I'm sitting in Brian's living room, I'm asking him for a word of confirmation. She starts manifest going, she's like, Boston, Massachusetts, intercessory missionaries are flooding Boston, Massachusetts. They're coming to labor for the revival and the great missionary sending that's coming out of that place. She began to prophesy the very day in my weak faith, I said, God, would you one more time confirm to me the vision you've placed within my spirit? He's so faithful and he's so jealous. <laughs> I love it. But I have to say that in the midst of us wrestling and contending to see the fullness of what God has intended for this region, the greatest gift to me has been friends that all share like vision. I mean, there's nothing like God confirming, affirming, and encouraging your heart, but when you do have friends that see what you see, that feel what you feel, and spur you on in what you're going after, it is one of the greatest gifts that God has given us. And I have a true friend in Brian Kim, and he's encouraged me, provoked me, and even helped sustain us here in the work that we're doing. So, Bri, we're excited to hear what the Lord speaks through you today. Love you. Thank you, Bethany. I think I'd rather hear Bethany preach than me preach, but whatever. Here we go. If you got your Bibles, let's open them up to Isaiah chapter 42. I'll tell you right up front, uh, thank you to the sound guy who makes my voice sound majestic up here. But uh, I could tell you on the front end that my, uh, we only have about half an hour and then we have another panel luncheon at 11.30, so I'm going to be brief. Yeah, I will be, we'll do, well, I'll be but I'll tell you my intention up front. I have two maybe bold intentions through my weak words that I hope will happen today. Number one is that some of you will get a vision to stay in Boston, to labor with J-Hop Boston to see a missions base established. And my vision is that in a year, 18 months from now, there'd be 70 intercessory missionaries who would keep the fire burning in Boston, night and day, day and night, even if it's just two by two in a room right down the road from here, that way, right down the road from here that would give themselves to labor for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the college campuses and then see a missionary movement explode from Boston once again. Even the prophetic word that Bethany shared last night of what she still believes God has Force the city of Boston, the University of Boston. That's my number one priority today, is that some of you, even I'm looking at the, the ladies from Gordon College that would set, get a vision for Boston and the surrounding area, New England, and say, God, would you do what you said you would do even a hundred years ago when John Armott was looking at the college campuses of Boston and saying, God, give us a student volunteer movement that would finish the task of world evangelization in this generation. That's my task number one today. My task number two today is to get some of you to move from Boston, to go to the hardest and darkest places, to plant prayer furnaces, to see a prayer explosion in the nations of the earth and from that place to see a great harvest of souls. And it might take you two, three, four years from now 
but that today you would make that determination in your heart that whatever it takes, I'm setting my sights to give myself as a foreign missionary who would go fast and pray for spiritual breakthroughs. And so that is my intention this morning, and I have 25 minutes to do it. So here we go. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 10 to 13 is where I'm going to be focusing on. Today, I want to also convince you, I have a lot to do in 25 minutes. I also want to convince you from the Bible, not just from prophetic speak, though I like that too, but from the Bible to show you what God is doing in this, these last days with this generation that one of the things that the Holy Spirit is raising up, one of the things that the Holy Spirit is emphasizing today is that he is raising up a night and day worship movement that will not relent until we see spiritual breakthroughs. And from that place, you will literally usher in the second coming of Jesus once and for all that will live in a thousand-year revival on earth. So I want to show you that in the Bible today too, if that works. So Isaiah chapter 42, verse 10. This is probably my favorite passage on the end time worship and prayer movement. And the book of Isaiah, other than the book of Revelation probably, has more to say about worship at the end of the age. And how the praying church is actually going to be a singing church. And that there's purpose and plan and design in how God is raising up a singing church across the earth. And just, let's just look at the Bible. It makes me happy. Verse 10, it says, Sing to the Lord a new song in his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it. And I just want to say this on the front end, that if, if this passage here is either Isaiah responding to the vision he has of God the Father anointing his son the most ele the elect one, the son in, him, in whom is all his delight, who's going to bring justice to the earth, particularly to the Gentile peoples. And it's either a response that Isaiah has to this glorious vision of the father anointing his son, or it's the father himself commanding us in this passage. And so either way, this is something of an end time prophecy that's descriptive, meaning it's not simply a prescription, but it's a description. It's going to happen whether you are a part of it or not. Whether you say yes to this today or you say no to this today, that the wheels of eternity are already grinding in this direction and it's inevitable. What's not inevitable, sorry, this is like, like what Lou says, spit zone, but it's holy water. <laughs> Don't, don't get in that. It's kind of gross. <laughs> but whether or not we say yes to this today, this is one of the things the Holy Spirit is doing. And it, I want to encourage you and implore you today to say yes because this is our great privilege and this is our great honor to stand in the counsel of God, to worship him. And from that place, the high praises of God in our mouth, the two-edged sword in our hand, we will bind kings in fetters. And it says this honor have all his saints. All right? So, sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them, 
Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the close coastlands. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. Man, I read that all wrong. I should be reading that with way more exuberance and jubilation because I'm sure that's the way that Isaiah was proclaiming it. More like, sing to the Lord a, a new song. Sing to the Lord, all you inhabit. I mean, he's seeing this vision, and there's got to be this, this bubbling up inside of him. As he sees this vision, he's saying, God, this is going to happen. But here, I just want to point out a few things to you in our time together this morning. He first begins, sing to the Lord a new song. I want to start again by what I just said, that when all is said and done, that the church of Jesus Christ is one day going to be known as a singing church. That singing itself is not a side issue or a side event that takes place on Sunday mornings only. And it's really just uh, an appetizer for the main event to prepare us to receive from the Word of God. If that's the way that we view singing, we view singing so differently than the way the Bible views singing. That the primary command in all of Scripture, believe it or not, the primary, the most repeated command in all of Scripture is one thing, sing. Read it in the Bible. Do your own word study. I'm, I did the work for you, but if you don't believe me, you can do your own word study. The greatest, the most frequent command in all of Scripture is to sing. Okay? You see, we think that this is somehow a side issue. I, I, I want to I hit this point hard because we think that it's Sunday mornings, 30 minutes, if we're in a seeker-sensitive church, maybe 20. An hour if you're in a charismatic church. But really, it's just to get to that pr uh, preaching of the word and ministry time. But no, in the scripture itself, singing is the command, and it's what the body of Christ is doing at all times. Ephesians chapter 5, it says, sing to one another psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as unto the Lord. Colossians 3, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I want that. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How? Teaching and admonishing one another by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That even the process of discipleship is done in the New Testament in the context of singing. That even the, the depth of character, that the word of Christ dwelling inside of us richly has to do with a singing bride. You see, we think it's a side issue and we forget these verses that Paul is telling us in his first church. How do you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly? How does the discipleship process happen in the body of Christ? And somehow we think that singing is somehow a side issue when the Apostle Paul tells us that the word of Christ will dwell in us richly as we teach one another by singing songs to one another as unto the Lord. That's a powerful thing. I think part of it is God knows our frame and our design. 
He knows that you and I are musical beings by nature. Why? Because he created us in his image. And I believe God is a musical being by his nature. And there's nothing like singing. There's nothing like music that so touches the human heart and allows us to respond in an emotive way. It it so touches the deepest recesses of our heart that you can hear a song on the radio and it touches something so deep in you, you'll just cry and cry and cry and cry. There's something about singing itself that is so powerful that connects us to the heart of God. That I, I, I fear that because we've made it a side issue in the church, the church of Jesus Christ in the Western world is no longer deep. That we've settled for cheap and plastic religion. Even in the methodology that the Holy Spirit gave to us through the Apostle Paul, that if you want the word of Christ to dwell in you richly, then open your mouth and sing. See, this is not a side issue that Isaiah is seeing here or the Lord is commanding here in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 10. The first thing he commands after seeing this glorious picture of Jesus, the only thing he can think of to respond to this vision he's seeing is lift your voice and sing. To sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. This is a global expansive movement. That from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, God is going to raise up a worship movement. And if you want to be on God's team in these last days, if you want to be about the business of God in these last days, you have to recognize that from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, his business is about being an incense movement. His business is about worshiping God day and night, night and day, that the prayers of the saints mingled with the incense from the golden altar in Revelation 8 is going to come before the Father as a pleasing fragrance. And when it's time, he's going to loose those bowls. And when it's time for Boston, he's going to loose those bowls. But there's a precondition. And that precondition is lift your voice in song. Some of you guys think you came to, came to Boston to get a good education. Get a good education. But that's secondary to the fact that God wants to see worship and prayer rising before his throne from this place. That from the ends of the earth, we will hear songs. And then what Isaiah does is he, he highlights, to me at least, what he's doing. He's highlighting the five most challenging areas to see worship and prayer established. The, the phrase that I use regularly is the hardest and darkest places of the earth. That there's not a square inch in the entire universe. There's not a square inch on this earth that Jesus doesn't look and cry out, mine. That when all is said and done, when he steps foot on that Mount of Olives, that he will say, every square inch of this earth belongs to me and me only. But he highlights the five challenging areas. Number one, he says, you coastlands, and you inha- or you who go down to the sea and all that is in it. He, Isaiah is seeing a picture of the islands of the earth lifting their voice in song. I think of the, the islands of the Pacific Ocean where the tribes have been singing songs to foreign gods for years and years. And then the missionary comes along and their, their mind is attuned to the God whom they're 
called to serve, that they were created to worship the uncreated God of the universe, the one true and living God of Israel. That the musical culture of those Polynesian islands, the musical culture of the natives and those Hawaiian islands, that their voice is meant to be lifted up to God and worship him night and day, day and night. This is a glorious picture. It says in Isaiah 24 that from the ends of the earth we hear songs. That when the earth is tottering to and fro like a hut, it says like a drunkard when the earth is shaking on its access, axis, when it's everything that can be shaken is being shaken. It says this one promise, that's such a beautiful promise, it says from the ends of the earth we've heard songs. And what's the content of the song? Glory to the righteous one. That in the midst of the end time judgments being poured out across the earth, there's one song that's being lifted up that as they're looking at the righteous judge of the earth, he's saying, glory, God. Glory to you, God. The ends of the earth, the furthest place from Jerusalem, New Zealand, the furthest places from Jerusalem is the Pacific Islands. That you can find your name in the book. Some of you might even be called to the Pacific Islands to go to the unreached tribes, to go to other islands like Papua New Guinea. I think something like 800 different tribes of 200 or less who have yet to hear the gospel even once in their lifetimes. You coastlands and you inhabitants of them, the coastlands that Isaiah sees, the coastlands historically, even in Isaiah's day, but today even we see this, are the major population centers of the earth. Boston is on the coastlands of America. Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, they're on the coastlands of America. Los Angeles, San Francisco, these are on the coastlands of America. God has not given up on cities. God has not given up on the major centers of thought, the major centers of culture. He's not looking at Europe and the coastlands of Europe. He's not looking at Paris and he's not scared and he's not intimidated by humanism and secularism. He's not up there shaking in his boots thinking, oh man, what am I going to do now? No, he knows that from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, not just from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, he says from every place, worship is going to be offered up. You know, San Francisco... People want to say, well, no, no, that's just the homosexuals now. No, God doesn't look at it that way. He's not given up on San Francisco. God doesn't look at Boston and say, man, man, oh, man. What happened there? Secularism and humanism. He's not shaking. Oh, no, what happened there? The promise of Scripture is that the major coastlands, the, coastlands, the major population centers of the earth, that there is going to be a righteous remnant everywhere lifting their voice up to the Father. That's why we, I want to see Boston, I, I said it again yesterday, it's like a thin place. The presence of God is, is here. Why? Because the saints who have labored and their prayers still live before the Father today. The prayers of Jonathan Edwards still live before God today that New England would be a center of revival. The prayers that John Armott prayed in 1910 at Bradford College, just 45 minutes from here. That the dreams of the fathers may be realized in this generation. That dream and that prayer still lives before the throne of God. And God has not forgotten and God will answer that one day. 
He's looking at the major population centers of the coastlands, the inhabitants of them, the peoples there. Then he says this in verse 11. He says, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. The wilderness, I mean, you think of the desert places. Whenever I read that passage of scripture, I think of those nomadic tribes in North Africa, the Bedouin people, two million Bedouins who move all throughout the deserts of North Africa. Not a single believer amongst them until God has his final word there. And he says, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. When all is said and done, there will even be people amongst the Bedouins, even in the, wildernesses of the, in the wilderness places of the earth that are going to lift up their voice, turn their face away from Islam's Allah, and they're going to look at Yahweh, the one true living God of Israel, and they're going to lift their voice in song. Not just lift their voice in something. It's very specific. They're going to lift up their voice in praise and song as their hearts are transformed as they open their mouths and sing to him. This next part is kind of my favorite. It says, the villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing. The villages of Kedar today, located in modern day Saudi Arabia. The villages that Selah inhabits, the houses of Selah is modern-day Jordan. Today, you know, this is Muslim majority by 99%. 99% of the people in these places today, in some places like Yemen, there's only seven known believers in a nation of millions. But the promise of Scripture is that there will be a victorious church in these places, that in that day they will overcome by the blood of the Lamb the word of their testimony, as they love not their lives even unto death, and sing songs to him, being a witness of the worthiness of Jesus in their generation. See, he says in Isaiah 25, I think verse 6 or 3, I don't know which one, it says in Isaiah 25 that in that day, in that, those last days, the strong peoples, meaning the fierce peoples, will glorify you. He says the cities of ruthless or terrifying nations will fear you. See, the promise of Scripture is not just that one day places like Kansas City or even Boston is going to worship God night and day, day and night, night and day, day and night. The promise of Scripture that I see is that one day Mecca will worship God. One day, Tehran is going to worship God. One day, North Korea is going to lift their voice in song. And that even the kings of those nations will have to recognize that Jesus alone is the king of the earth. And there is no king but King Jesus. I want you to get a picture of this because we think, well, Islam, oh, it's, the, it's the big bad wolf. And it is. It, it's, it's coming after every Every nation in every generation. See, there's two religions. There's two major world religions that have great commissions. Christianity and Islam. Islam will do it by force. We will do it by persuasion and the spirit of God. But we are headed to a titanic clash. Because global expansive movements at some point have to run into each other. And at some point, young men and women of God are going to have to get mowed down on the front lines of the mission field 
that Muslims might actually come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. We just had Islamic scholar or, or Christian scholars who have studied Islam, they're experts on Islam, and one of our students asked, you know, well, how, what can we do? They're so stirred, they're saying, they're hearing about all these things about Islam and reaching the Muslim peoples all over the world, and what can we do? <laughs> I love the Professor Joshua Lingle from Biola University. His response is, well, you know, Christianity is still the largest world religion. We can spare a few hundred million people to go to the hardest and darkest places amongst the Muslim peoples and shed their blood, dying preaching the gospel. We could do that. And George Otis Jr. said in 1970s, he says, perhaps the reason that we're not able to see Muslims getting saved is Muslims know how to die better than Christians do. And when Muslims don't see Christians who are willing to die for their faith, they wonder if their faith is worth living for at all. See, there's, in, in the Apostle Paul's mind, I mean, people will say, well, there's closed nations. There's nations you can't even get into, you know. They're so persecuted, you can't ever get in, into these nations. They're closed nations, and they, they have these phrases of, this is a closed nation, and you can't get in there. I tell you what, the Apostle Paul, a closed nation would have been a foreign thought to him. In fact, we see it in Acts chapter 14. He's beaten, stoned left for dead. The saints gather around him. The, the people, as they beat him and stoned him to death, they said, don't ever come back into our cities. Get out of here. Never come back again. They stone him, leave him for dead. Don't ever come back. The saints gather around. They pray for him, whether he's raised from the dead or healed from death wounds. The apostle Paul gets up, and what does he do? He goes right back into the city that they say, don't come ever again into our city. To the Apostle Paul, a closed nation would have been a foreign concept. I love what Lauren Cunningham said. It was just with him last weekend. He says, there's no such thing as a closed nation. And I can get you into any nation. My only, I can't promise you that I can get you out, but I can get you in. <laughs> and there are people, even within YWAM, young Korean Americans who are now infiltrating North Korea. Why? Because they're saying, it's worth it. If we die, we die. But may God have glory even inside of North Korea. Boggles my mind. And then he says this. He says in the end of verse 11, let them shout from the top of the mountains. These are, I think of the Himalayan mountains. I think of Nepal and Bhutan and Tibet where men still dressed in orange robes are worshiping their God night and day, day and night, great into molden, graven, golden images, not realizing that they were created to worship God and God alone. What would it look like to send some young Western American missionaries into the middle of Tibet the heart of Buddhism and see a whole jailbreak of Buddhist monks come into the kingdom. And then they just turn their system around and worship Jesus instead. See, that's what I envision when I read this passage. I, I don't envision it, oh, this is just a small group of people, oh, you know, it's just a, a small remnant. No, I have to believe that when God sees these things, he's seeing a mighty remnant of believers in all of these places. Today, they're called unreached or least reached places, but tomorrow they're the most reached and they're most vibrant, in love, passionate worshipers of Jesus. 
But what's it going to take? What's it going to take? Because we, we read this in Scripture. But in Romans 10, Paul says, how will they believe unless they hear? And how will they hear unless someone is sent to them? Unless there's a preacher, and then unless someone is sent to them to preach. You see, again, I said it earlier that God is going to do this, whether you are involved or not. But there will be young men and women of God who are involved in this process. Who are going to go through the meat grinder, the way these Islamic scholars put it. The meat grinder of Islam. Lose their lives in the process. But upon their lives, God will pour out an outrageous awakening of souls in these places. What's it going to take? You see, in the generation that Bethany was sharing about earlier, the student volunteer movement, 1886, in Mount Hermon, Massachusetts, actually North, Northfield, Massachusetts, Northfield? Northfield, Massachusetts, D.O. Moody gathers with about 200 students. Those 200 students, among them, 100 of them, called the Mount Hermon 100, dedicate their lives to finishing the task of world evangelization in their generation. Within 30 years, those 100 turn into 20,000 plus college graduates who've decided to give their lands the best and the brightest among them. Harvard, Yale, M I mean, all of the major universities, within 30 years, 20,000 college students give themselves to finishing the task of world evangelization in their lifetime. But you know what? You know what happened in their lifetime? The average lifespan of a student volunteer was two and a half years, and they knew it. They knew it enough that they would pack their belongings in wooden coffins, kiss their mom and dad goodbye and say, mom and dad, I'm going overseas. Packing my belongings in coffins, probably never see you again. They knew the average shelf life of a student volunteer was two and a half years, either mowed down by, as martyrs or mowed, mowed down by disease and, 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 and sickness. They knew what they were signing up for in their generation. It says when Adonai Judson, who, who uh, Bethany was talking about earlier, the first American missionary, when he presented, and actually the, 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 the man who inspired A.J. Gordon, the founder of Gordon College, who's planted Gordon College, why? To raise up a new generation of missionaries to spread the, the, the joy of Jesus to all nations. Adonai Judson, a 21-year-old man, Recent or 22-year-old man, recently graduated from Andover Seminary in Massachusetts at the time, presents himself to the board of congregational churches as a 22-year-old with another man named Samuel Mills, radicals, university radicals, who got a vision to see a missions movement, a student volunteer missionary movement touch the ends of the earth and what did they do? They present themselves, and as they're presenting themselves in a building that was probably just like this, as they're presenting their case and saying, let us be missionaries. Let us be missionaries from America. We don't want to just go to London and be sent by the London Missionary Board. We believe that America has a calling to be a light to the nations of the earth. Let us be missionaries sent from the churches in America as they're presenting this with boldness and passion, with vision to see this happen. It says all of a sudden in the balconies, weeping, gentle weeping begins to break out 
amongst the men and women, the fathers and mothers who are hearing their sons and daughters saying, God, let us go die for the sake of the gospel. It was a family affair. They knew from the top on down if these are our sons and our daughters who are saying, God, let us go die preaching the gospel. In 30 years, they went to over 160 nations at the time. They had enough sense and passion that they actually believed they finished the task of world evangelization in their lifetimes. In fact, they went to all 160 nations and they thought, well, we did it. Can you believe that? There's 12 countries before that time of evangelical missionaries. In 30 years, they mobilized 20,000 to go to all 160 nations in their generation. They were beginning to come off the mission field because they really believe they finished the task of world evangelization. They're native believers in every, every generation, in every nation at that point. It's not until the 1970s with Ralph Winter when he thunders and he says, no, we're not done yet. It's every unreached people group and there's still 7,000 remaining today. What's it going to take? I want to tell you this, that some of you are counting the costs and you're evaluating the risk of what this means, but I want to say this to you today. Risk is right. Risk is right. It's what Jim Elliott said. He said, Lord, I don't ask for a long life. I just ask for a full life like yours, Jesus. Mowed down in his late 20s trying to reach the Aka Indians, inspiring a whole generation of missionaries in his generation. He lived a full life, just not a long one. What would it take for us to actually believe that in this generation, in our lifetimes, more than getting married, more than having good careers, whoever hates, whoever loves his father or mother, brother or sister, children, yea, even self, more than me, is not worthy to be called my disciple. What if it means laying down your, your dream, young women? What if it means laying down your dream of being married at a young age and having a beautiful family and comfortable home in America? You know, a mediocre house, a mediocre life, a mediocre wife, two and a half children, living the American dream, and on your epitaph it says, here lies so-and-so. She lived a mediocre life. Live the American dream. If that's the American dream, I want nothing to do with it. Because there's a dream in God's heart that out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, ransomed by the blood of the Lamb, there would be worshipers of Jesus. This is the kind of vision that I want to see in our generation where you go to places like China and Korea where they're sending missionaries left and right and they, they think, America, oh, America, no, 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 no. They're too lazy to do anything now. I was just in a creative access nation in Asia where it's illegal to be a professing Christian, illegal to share your faith. I go to this missionary training center, about 30 young Asian believers 16 years old to 20 years old, giving themselves to a year of study. Why? So that they can preach the gospel in their own nation, knowing that many of them will be imprisoned and lose their lives in the process. And their missionary training education is not wimpy. They have to memorize the entire New Testament in two years. They have to memorize all the Pauline epistles in their first year. These are 16-year-olds. 
Wake up at 5 a.m., work in fields and rice paddies, preach the gospel for five to six hours, and 11, 11 p.m. at night before they go to sleep, 16-year-olds in Asia. See, to them, discipleship is not an option. Discipleship is not something they do when they feel like it. Why? Because they can't do it. It's not worth it if they just do it when they feel like it. No, they've got a vision of this man who's seated upon the throne, who gave a great commission, who said, Go ye therefore into all the world, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, baptizing them, teaching them, doing all these things. Why? Because I'm worth it. And these 16, 17, 18, 19, 20-year-olds are giving their lives in such a way, why? So they can go back to Jerusalem through Central Asia, through the Middle East, back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel along the way. They already have people in Tehran, Istanbul. They have people inside of Kazakhstan, Afghanistan. They want to establish, well, I can't give away too much. I just have to believe that God is not finished with America yet. I just have to believe that the day of Western missionaries is not over with yet. Why? Because we have an apostolic call to the nations of the earth. When will the gospel become, what it, become again what it once was, foolish but dangerous? Some of you might make decisions that your friends, your family, they say, you are being foolish right now. You have such a bright future ahead of you. Why would you waste your life as a missionary? But why can't the gospel become against what it once was foolish but dangerous? We've been sold a bill of goods, of easy believism, the comforts of our culture dulling us, this we're drinking of the spirit of the age and we don't even know it, yet God has called us to this glorious movement of worship and prayer and missions to finish the task of world evangelization in our lifetimes. I don't want to wait. Why? Because I long for the king. He says, when the gospel of the kingdom is preached to all nations, then the end shall come. I don't want to wait. I want to sing back the king once and for all. I want to be part of this movement or die trying. I have hope for this generation. I have hope for America. I have hope for New England. I have hope for Boston. I have hope for college students. That what our forefathers dreamed of, we can realize in our generation. What John Armott saw and envisioned, we can see it come to pass in our lifetimes. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation worshiping God around his throne. Let's just, amen, let's stand. just want to pray for us, bring this time to a close. I don't even want to do some altar call this morning. I just want to do business with you and God, one-on-one. You talk to him. And you ask him, Lord, wherever I am, I want to bring glory to your name. Lord, are you calling me to Boston to build a a fiery furnace of prayer that would be a missions base that would send thousands, tens of thousands of college students to the ends of the earth 
preaching the gospel, worshiping Jesus? Or Lord, are you calling me to possibly in a year or two, three, four years down the line, if I'm still in university, to sell all my possessions, give to the poor, and follow after you? Follow the Lamb wherever you go. There, I heard a story recently of a reporter who was trying to get to Mother Teresa, following her all throughout India, trying to get to her, finds her finally in Calcutta. She gets to, or the reporter gets to Calcutta. She asks Mother Teresa, why would you do something like this? Mother Teresa responded, at a young age, I gave myself to follow the lamb wherever he went, and he led me here to Calcutta amongst the untouchables. What if you might follow the lamb wherever he goes? And what if he leads you to the hardest and darkest places, to the cities, the streets of Tehran? What if he leads you to Istanbul, a, a nation of 70 million Turks, only about 1,500 to 3,000 known believers, less than 1% of 1% of their population? What if he leads you to the streets of India amongst the untouchables? What if he leads you to places where you have to breathe diseased air and just trust God? That if you called me here, God, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. What if he calls you to Cambridge, Massachusetts? to Boston, Massachusetts, to waste your lives in a prayer room for a decade until you see the walls of humanism and intellectualism fall. The walls of Jericho come down and you see a mass jailbreak of college students who give their lives for the one who gave his life. What if God calls you to Morocco? You set your course even now as a young man, as a young woman, going to Harvard, going to Yale, going to MIT, to Gordon College, to Boston University, to Boston College, the best and the brightest of a generation where our generation might not even understand the choices you make and they might say, why this waste why are you wasting your lives and you just point with your life to the glory and beauty of Jesus and say guys my life is worth wasting for Jesus Princeton College 1887 after the hundred men gave themselves at Mount Hermon Princeton College, President McCosh, the president, president of Princeton College, looking upon these student volunteers, giving themselves in this way. A revolution on the college campus is taking place of young men and women saying, I want to give my life as a missionary. Forgo a life of ease and comfort, of, of careers and, and fame and fortune. 
He says, has there ever been such an offering of young men and women in this generation, in any generation since the days of Pentecost? The best, the brightest, yes, weak and broken. Here we are, God. We, we avail ourselves to you, God. Today, God, I ask you to, to speak to me. I give you full permission. I surrender myself wholly over to you, God, to interrupt even my plans. Let the dead bury the dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Interrupt my dreams, my hopes, my ambitions. Lord, you know my frame. You know that even if you call me today that I'm so prone to wander, I'm so prone to distraction. But Lord, I ask you today that in my heart you would place a steel in my heart, in my blood that would keep me on the course of a long obedience in the same direction. Whether it happens tomorrow or it takes four years when I graduate from university, God, I have set my eyes to serve as a missionary in the hardest and darkest places of the earth. Maybe just for a tribe of 200 people. It's not even for a big tribe of people. But Lord, you're worth it, God. You're worth it. Maybe never to know numerical impact, but God, you desire worship from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. God, if you send me to Papua New Guinea today, God, I say that I'm willing. If you send me to Saudi Arabia today, God, though I am afraid, I know that you will give me strength. Why? Because you said I would overcome by the blood of the Lamb. The truth of the gospel, the word of our testimony, the proclamation of that truth, and that we would love not our lives even unto death. God, lead us into that third phase of Revelation 12, 11, that you would cause us to not love our lives even unto death, God. I said, help me, God. I can't do it in my own strength. If you call me to Tehran, if you call me to Lebanon, if you call me to Jordan, if you call me to Egypt or Libya, Morocco, if you call me to Yemen, Oman, Qatar, if you call me to the United Arab Emirates, God, if you call me to North Korea, if you call me to Indonesia, God, I'm willing, I'm willing, but God, my flesh is willing. My spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. God, help me to tarry with you in this final hour of human history. God, I just want to be with you where you are. God, may it be said of our generation, not just a hundred years ago, but today, has there ever been such an offering of men and women in this generation, in any generation since the days of Pentecost?
I want to follow you. I want to follow the lamb wherever he goes. Lord, I ask you to help us. I ask today for my brothers and sisters here. I ask for college students. Lord, making career choices even as we speak, God, even contemplating and wrestling through what am I supposed to do with my life. I ask you today, God, Not just because it's a good idea, but because this is the dream of your heart for our earth, God, for our planet. I ask you for moms and dads today, Father. To loosen the grip of this earth on their children's lives. to offer up their children as living sacrifices, to preach the gospel of the kingdom in the hardest and darkest places of the earth. Lord, there's pain in our offering today, God. We know the wounds of our heart. We know the wounds of this generation. But God, we say, blessed be the name of the Lord. You're worthy, God. I ask you for Harvard students today, God, even non-believing Harvard students today, that you would prepare the grounds of their heart to give themselves as missionaries one day, Father, saved tomorrow, a year from now, giving themselves as missionaries in the hardest and darkest places of the earth. God, make the gospel what it once was again in our generation, foolish but dangerous. Deliver us from that which is cheap and plastic and give us real and authentic faith again in this generation, God. just think it's really important that we respond to the word that we just heard even by creating an altar before the Lord as Brian was preaching I just I'm so struck with I feel like our generation has been so inoculated by the prosperity message that it's actually been one of the greatest um, dangers and teachings that have actually stripped our generation from understanding what it is, even as Brian was saying, living a life that by life or by death we will follow the Lamb. Lord, we ask, Lord, that any place that the subtlety of even the prosperity message of that somehow the favor of a God is equated with finance and prestige and platforms. Lord, instead of understanding